The Audi R8 is a sitting duck, and Doug Jamiro bags it without pausing as he trolls through suburban Atlanta in search of exotic cars, turning on and aiming his cannon point-and-shoot with one fluid motion and nonchalantly banging off a perfectly framed image through his open window. As the R8 glides off into traffic, Jamiro notices a flash of red, Ferrari red, in the left turn lane of the next cross street. An F430 Spider, he announces matter-of-factly. Jamiro pulls a quick U-turn against a red light to position his Audi A4 in front of the Ferrari. The 430 turns left, as expected, but then ducks into a strip mall. Jamiro backtracks for a closer look and catches the Ferrari in the parking lot. Then Demiro hears the signature snarl of a V12 engine and sees a blue Lamborghini cruising past on the far side of the street. Murcielago, he shouts, and we sprint back to his car. Furiously working his Tiptronic transmission, Demiro peels out of the parking lot, hurdles the wrong way up a left turn lane, and then cranks off another Ill illegal U-turn. Two minutes of brisk driving puts him in position for photos of the back of the Murcielago, but the money shot is a side view, and each time Jamiro starts to pull even with the Lambo, we hear its exhaust crackle and see its rear end squat under hard acceleration. That's gorgeous, Jamiro says as he darts from lane to lane in hard pursuit. Man, that thing is sinister. And so that is a quote from a 2009 article about Doug Jamiro, the YouTuber and co-founder of Cars and Bids. And it just shows, this is from 14 years ago, and it just shows his insane passion for cars, which ultimately led him to build this incredibly successful YouTube channel, which now has over 4 million subscribers, and also allowed him to set himself up to build this incredible business in cars and bids that we'll go into in this episode. So I think that Doug DeMuro is so fun to analyze from a business perspective because he's the perfect example of sometimes the good guys finish first. And meaning that obviously there are a lot of stories where it's just a ruthless business guy who cuts corners and screws people over and gets super rich and it's kind of questionable. That's not Doug DeMuro. He's just been working really hard. He never cuts corners and he just was focused on the long term and he got exactly what he wanted. And it's not this crazy $50 billion, $100 billion company, but it's what he wants and it's allowed him to achieve all of his personal goals. So we're going to go through his career and then we'll explain cars and biz, the business, because I think it helps illustrate a lot of really important economics and business concepts that you wouldn't expect from a creator business at all. Like you, like normally these creators, they're just selling like t-shirts and it's just a widgets business, but cars and bids is really interesting because it's a marketplace and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I think that you should learn about this because obviously we talk a lot about big tech CEOs, venture back companies, and this is like a creator business. But even if you aren't a creator, a lot of companies these days, a lot of founders need to work with creators and build these win-win situations where the creator promotes your product. And by listening to the story, you're going to understand how to effectively work with creators to create kind of long-term value. It doesn't matter if you're into cars or not, his story is fascinating and I guarantee you'll love this episode. So let's go back to his history. He's 35 years old, he's born in 1988. He grew up in Colorado and was basically obsessed with cars as a very young age. And he bought a camera just to take pictures of cars and he has this crazy story about how his friends didn't believe him when he said he saw a particular car. So he started taking photos to prove that he saw the cool cars and of course getting familiar with the camera, that leads him into 
YouTube. And then, of course, what sells cars on the internet is great photos. And he's very focused on high quality photos for every car that they list on the car auction website that he runs now. And that quote from that I started out with was he was featured in Automobile Magazine at age 20. And he's just like this enthusiast car spotter. And they get they send out this journalist and they write this like gushing profile of this guy. And he's not he hasn't done anything at this point. He's just taking pictures of cars. But he's so passionate about it that it makes for a good story, which is just hilarious. So after graduating high school, he goes and studies economics at Emory University in Atlanta. And I think even though he's branded as he's just a car guy, he's just a YouTuber. Clearly, the fact that he studied economics is important because every decision that he makes is built upon very solid economic fundamentals. And I think that's really valuable. He also met his wife in college and he's still with her. And it's a very cool story. He's he's a very kind of like mellow guy. He never really lives in a tier one city. He never, oh, I got to go to New York to make it. He lives in Atlanta and Colorado and Denver. And, and I think now he lives in San Diego. So after graduating from Emory, he gets a job at Porsche in the North American headquarters as a vehicle allocation manager, which I think he said he made $48,000. And basically his job was to decide where new cars would go to different dealerships. So at Porsche, they release a lot of different cars. They have cheaper cars. They have really fancy models that are limited release. And obviously those are going to like Beverly Hills. But his job was to decide where they go. And he also got to drive a company car, which is pretty cool. But it wasn't long before he quit the corporate grind and wanted to focus full-time on automotive writing. So he wrote for three different blogs. One was called The Truth About Cars. He had his own blog called Plays With Cars, and he wrote for Jalopnik, which is another car blog. He actually wrote two eBooks and distributed those. He's like a very proficient writer, but what's interesting is that a lot of car writers at this time were just playing the SEO game and just churning out content, like five, 10 articles a day, just any news, any idea, listicles and stuff. And Doug would post just like once or twice a week. And the key was that he injected a ton of personality into his writing. And so he developed a very loyal followership, followership because people came to him for honest opinions and humorous opinions. And he was just a normal guy writing about cars. And you could tell that he was clearly opinionated and actually loved the cars. And he wasn't just trying to game the system and get a bunch of views. He is writing, but then I, <laughs> it's hilarious, but one of his readers who is reading his blogs just tells him, hey, you should make videos, <laughs> which is hilarious because most people, like they look at video and they think, oh, that's a good opportunity. I should go do that, but not Doug. It's somebody tells him, hey, I want to see you make videos. And he's okay, cool, I'll make videos. So he starts posting on YouTube. And this is back in 2013. No one was really making money on YouTube yet. It was still a very small community, but he's making these fun videos, having a decent job with it. It's still pretty hard and he's not really focused on it. He's mostly thinking about can the videos promote the writing that he's doing. He thinks of himself as like a journalist mostly. But in 2014, he has this turning point because he buys a red Ferrari 360 Modena. I think that's how you pronounce it, Modena. And he takes out a loan and he really leverages himself. He does all these hacks to get it as cheaply as possible. So he's paying the, the loan on it and he can barely afford it, maxes out his financials. But it makes him the only person on YouTube with a Ferrari. And so he can make all these crazy videos about having a Ferrari. He tries to 
pick up girls with it and this jokey video. And then he's trying to like commute in it and park it. And there's all these funny videos of him driving this around. And he moves from Atlanta to Philadelphia. And of course, like parking is crazy. The streets are really bad in Philadelphia. It all just makes for a lot of really good content. And that, of course, goes viral on YouTube. And so he is starting to see that YouTube can grow and he's actually starting to make money on YouTube. And at a certain point, he flips from focusing primarily on writing as the outlet to video. And another key turning point is he buys this 2007 Aston Martin V8 Vantage. And he and it's a cool car, it's fast and whatever, but specifically to make the content better, he gets this bumper to bumper warranty that <laughs> basically was sold to him at like way below market rates because people didn't think that anyone would actually take them up on the offer to use the warranty, but he drives the car a ton and he gets a ton of value out of it because it's always breaking because it's this rare sports car. And of course it's very prone to mechanical failures and all sorts of problems, but it's covered by the warranty. So every time something breaks, he has a new story to tell about this broke and I got the bumper to bumper warranty to pay for it. And now I'm making money. So he, again, he's thinking economically and it's really great content because of course, like no one wants to see a big car company win, it's fun to watch this random guy on YouTube pull one over on the car company by taking advantage of their bumper to bumper warranty. And he even, Doug is so good about squeezing all of the good content out of something that happens. Like he got the Ferrari, he made a ton of videos with that. He gets the Aston Martin with the bumper to bumper warranty. He makes a ton of videos about that. But then he also, he also wrote a book about the bumper to bumper warranty called bumper to bumper. So he's really good at seeing something interesting and then making a lot of content about it. And that's of course really important to growing a YouTube channel. And so in summer of 2016, he gets a deal to go to autotrader.com and be the editor of their blog, Oversteer. And he writes articles and he's also managing other article writers and he's making videos to promote the blog. But, and it's interesting because Autotrader of course is a place where you can buy and sell used cars and that's exactly what he's doing now. So you can see that from a very early point in time, it was clear that the way to monetize what he was doing was with a car auction site or a car buy and selling site. Like that was the clear monetization pathway. It just took him another four or five years to actually launch a company in that space. And it was a, a bad, it was like a bad value trade for him at the time. It was fine. He was getting a salary and that allowed him to pursue YouTube. It was important, but it didn't create this like long-term upside that you'll see he's creating with cars and bids. And there's another example of this. He did a deal with Turo, which is a car rental site. It's Airbnb for cool cars. So instead of going to Hertz and renting a Ford Fiesta, you can go on Turo and you can maybe rent a Porsche Boxster or something. And it's a, it's a cool site and they give him credit to rent cars basically for free and then he can make videos about them. But it's a but it's a terrible deal because they're it's I don't know if they actually paid him in addition to giving him the credit. It seems like they just gave him credit, but the videos that he made featuring Turo have just grown and grown. Like I watched a few of these videos like last month and Turo gave him the credit, which was probably like nothing. It was probably like a couple hundred bucks in 2016. And Turo is still getting an ad read from this. So it's just a huge value creation event for Turo. And he is unable to capture like barely any of that value, but he does get to review the car. It does give him content. And it's not that huge of a opportunity cost because otherwise he'd have to pay for it. But it's just an interesting example of a creator deal that was clearly not in his favor over the long term. And, but it did give him something important, which was 
he was able to review cars without dealing with any of the PR nonsense that comes with talking to a manufacturer. So he reviewed this Maserati, the Ghibli, and if he had gotten that car from Maserati, I'm sure their press team would be like, oh, you can't say this, you can't say that, you need to make sure you mention this, and oh, we're gonna fact check this, and we're gonna ask you to take down the video if it's too negative. But because he got it on Turo, Turo doesn't care if he trashes this car, and the owner of the car doesn't know or really even care. He already owns the car, it doesn't matter. But Doug is just able to rip this car and just say it's like the worst car ever, and it makes for really entertaining content, really interesting content. And it's something that is only possible because he isn't going the traditional route that most automotive journalists go. And he's not talking to the automotive company directly. And he still does this today. He gets a lot of cars directly from viewers who are just fans and they buy the cars and they say, hey, Doug, come and review my car. And he also gets, he also still rents cars. He does do some press cars every once in a while, someone will give him a car, but it's pretty rare. And everyone knows, look, a Doug DeMiro video, even if it's somewhat negative, it's gonna be honest and it's worth it. And you, maybe you only call him if you have a good car that you know he'll review positively. And then he also works with dealerships who don't really care if someone says something negative about a car because they're just happy to get a promotion. And he says, oh, I borrowed this car from Mercedes-Benz of Los Angeles and you should go there. And it's a nice shout out for them, even if he says something negative about this particular car. And all of that allows him to just build this incredible rapport with his audience. Everyone trusts him. They know that he's real and that he's not he's not bought by anyone, essentially. He can just say whatever he wants. And so around this time, his content is evolving. He'd been doing a lot of stunty videos. He's trash talking the Maserati. He's doing stunts with the Ferrari. He's doing the weird warranty videos with the Aston Martin, the bumper to bumper thing. But around 2016, 2017, he starts formalizing the channel and finds a real flow. And he covers kind of three different areas. So he loves doing these rare supercars because everyone wants to learn about them. So he does like the Bugatti Chiron, the Ford GT, and everyone wants to know why a Bugatti costs $2 million. So just watching some guy for 20 minutes, sit inside this thing, drive it, show you the buttons, really give you the experience. That's a lot of value. And that has a very broad appeal. But then he also, he's a car enthusiast and car enthusiasts, like they don't necessarily always care about the Bugatti, they like weird cars and old cars and unique cars, but he's also covering those. He covers this car like the BMW Isetta, which I'd never heard of, but it's this really tiny BMW that I think the company built after World War II when they weren't allowed to build like big cars because of like the post-war agreements. And it's just like a horrible car, And he, but it's very interesting and you can't get that content anywhere else. But then he's not just the car enthusiast and the supercar guy, he's also, in, he's also reviewing just general cars that normal people would think about buying. Like he reviewed the Hyundai Palisade, which is just like a family car. And a lot of people would just watch that to make a decision about, should I buy that one? Or the Ford Explorer or Tesla Model Y or something like that. And so those, so he's created this, he can capture a really broad audience with the rare supercars. He builds the credibility with the old enthusiast cars. And then he also is actually helping people make real world decisions because the average person is not gonna go out and buy a Bugatti Chiron. They're gonna watch that video and then maybe they buy a Ford Mustang or something that he reviews favorably or a BMW 3 Series or something. And he formalizes his structure. So he talks about these quirks and features, which is like his key phrase. And it's important because a lot of automotive reviewers, they'll only talk about the features, the pros and cons, but Doug is obsessed with finding like 
quirky things about cars, which means like the weird things that car makers decided, or maybe they were forced to do because of cost constraints or weird manufacturing trade-offs. And it's just this weird stuff that he's bringing value to the viewer. This information is not available online. You can't just ask ChatGPT, what's the weirdest thing about the new Mercedes car? And it'll tell you because that hasn't been discovered yet. Like he actually has to go and sit in the car, feel around it, understand what's different from other normal cars, and then tell you why they made these weird decisions. And it just makes it really intriguing, really entertaining content. And then he also standardizes every car to this Doug score. So he has, I think, 10 categories, five for like how fun the car is on the weekend, and then how practical the car is on the daily score. And everything's out of 10, so the score's out of 100, and he puts it in a spreadsheet. And so you get this very quantitative analysis at the end that's very satisfying, and it allows you to do an apples to apples comparison in the Doug DeMuro world. So in 2017, he has a major break and a really big turning point for the channel. He gets invited to go on Jay Leno Leno's show, Jay Leno's Garage. He's blindfolded and he has to review, he has to guess what car is which just by the sound, I think. And, uh, and he develops this relationship with Jay Leno, who's a huge car fan. And eventually that gets him access to Jay Leno's McLaren F1, which is this incredibly rare, I think it's like a $20 million supercar. It's actually the car that Elon Musk and Peter Thiel crashed on Sand Hill Road that everyone always talks about the <laughs> the drama of they crashed this car. But now that I know everything about the McLaren F1, I'm just obsessed with the actual car. And the fact that they were driving this like super rare supercar was super fascinating. But it's all just like this turning point that now he's been crowned as like a legit, legit automotive journalist, a tier one car reviewer and content producer. And his sub count is growing. But more importantly than the subs, like he, I think he has 4 million subs now, but he's basically averaging a million views a video. Like he has huge engagement. Everyone shows up and watches them and a lot of them go viral. And it's because he's cultivated this audience of very broad appeal videos. And, but then there's this turning point. He's maxed out what's possible with just YouTube. And he has some anxiety about what is gonna happen in the future. Can he continue to just grow this channel in perpetuity? Probably not. There's probably only so many people that wanna watch car content. And what happens if other people come up? Obviously there's TikTokers that are making car content now and the algorithm might change and he might get exhausted of reviewing all these cars and he wants to create something that's more, more durable. And that's where the idea for cars and bids comes up. And so he'd met this guy, Blake Machado, who was a tech guy, done a startup. He actually raised $20 million from Bessemer, Google Ventures, Intel Capital to build kind of an app install software company. So basically if you're on Windows, you could replace your start menu with this like third party app that would allow you to install other software and they would advertise different apps that you could install. And it was like a small business, not a huge venture outcome, but clearly the guy made money and the studio was doing well. And he had spun out and started building other software companies. And so Doug had just met up with him randomly. Like the guy just emailed. This is like such a funny story about Doug, but just like the viewer who emailed him and was like, you should do, you should make YouTube videos. Blake emails him and says, hey, do you want to get coffee sometime? And they do. And then eventually they decide to start building this company. And it's a very logical business to build. Bring a Trailer is another major competitor in the space. It's a car auction site. And they had both been aware of it, but they were aware of some of the flaws with the Bring a Trailer kind of system. And they wanted to improve the software. And then also they knew that with 
Doug's channel, they could bring a huge audience over and it wouldn't just be launching to crickets. But they're still worried about launching to crickets. That is a legitimate concern. They were they built this all through, I think, 20, late 2019, and then they were ready to launch it in 2020. And then, of course, COVID hits and no one knows what's going to happen. There was a whole thesis about, oh, we're going to work from home. No one's going to need to drive anymore. Would anyone want a car? But of course, it turned into like the best car market ever. There were super low interest rates. There was big stimulus money. And so people started gambling on cars and it was just the best time to launch a car auction site because everyone was buying these. You saw G-Wagons were selling over sticker by $200,000. It was like a crazy time for cars. It's come down a lot now, but there's still a lot of people that buy, sell and trade these interesting collector cars and they launch and it works really well. And part of it that's interesting is that it's not just a cynical monetization strategy for Doug. And this is like a common theme with him. He really only wants to focus on things that he just enjoys doing. Like he loves reviewing cars and figuring out the quirks and features of them. So he just makes these videos constantly. And with cars and bids, he basically got an excuse to start reviewing old cars again. Like he had realized that the Bugatti Chiron is gonna get way more views than the old like BMW Isetta or whatever. And that was kind of disappointing to him because he likes these weird old cars, but it wouldn't really make sense economically to do a video about some old car that no one's going to watch if it doesn't have broad appeal. But if he's selling that car on cars and bids now, he doesn't just make money from the AdSense on that video. He also gets to sell the car and then take a cut of the sale price. So this kind of allows him to double down on his passion for creating content and kind of reinvigorates him. And you can see that after he launches cars and bids, he just starts making more and more videos. It's crazy. Like most people, if they start a business, they're okay, good. I can step back from the content creation and I don't need to do so much of that anymore. I'm sick of it. Not Doug. Doug is, I'm going to make even more videos. It's crazy. The business is growing. It's doing really well. They're profitable. Basically, he's converting the audience really effectively. Every video has an ad spot for cars and bids. And a lot of the videos are direct ads for specific cars that he's auctioning at the time. So the model just works perfectly. The site grows. And then in 2023, in February, just three years after launch, the churning group comes in and buys a majority stake for $37 million. And so he gets kind of the majority of that because he had like a solid kind of equity split. And obviously like some of that money goes to fund the business, but a lot of it clearly went to him as secondary sale where he actually gets the cash. And he, this is like an awesome turning point for anyone who'd been following the channel because he'd been obsessed with this car, the Porsche Carrera GT since he was a kid, like back in 2009, he said, when I was on my first date with my first girlfriend in February of 05, I saw a Porsche Carrera GT. I told all of my friends and they didn't believe me. So I said, we'll see about that. Now I've photographed five of them. And he's just obsessed with this car. He's reviewed a few of them. He like collects little miniature versions of them. And it's an extremely expensive car. I think he paid $1.25 million for it. But again, it's a collector's item. And I think that's something that's like underappreciated about the way he buys these cars. Like he is, again, to go back to his economics degree, he's very thoughtful about investing in these cars. Like he has a good eye for what cars will go up in value. And he's not like some incredible hedge fund trader that's making like 40% a year on this, but he doesn't lose a lot of money on these cars because he knows what cars will likely go up in value and is very good at picking them. And then he also is really good at leveraging a bunch of 
tax incentives. There was a moment in Atlanta where there was no sales tax on selling a car if you bought it from an individual and you, or you sold it to an individual. So he was just buying and selling cars constantly. And maybe he lost some money, but he got the joy of driving all these cars and he has all this experience with, with all these different types of cars. The Porsche Carrera GT, huge milestone for him. And it's like a realization of all the hard work. He's been grinding for decades building, or not decades, but probably maybe almost 10 years at this point on YouTube. And it's finally, he's captured all the value. And there's another interesting car that I think acts as a good segue to the next section of this. He loves this particular car called the Mercedes E63 AMG wagon. And it's a hilarious car. It's a station wagon. And you would never think it was cool unless you were into cars, but it's a Mercedes. So first off, it's a station wagon. So it's a family car. You can put your kids and your dogs in it. You can put a bunch of stuff in the back. It basically has the space of an SUV, but because it's a Mercedes, it's also a luxury car. So it's really nice interior. It has all like the fancy features and it's really just a nice car, but then because it's the AMG version, it has 700 horsepower and it's also this crazy performance car. The E63 wagon, I think he's owned like two or three of these cars, like different versions. And I think the reason that he likes it so much is because it breaks all the normal constraints. Like typically if you want a crazy performance car, you get the Ferrari, but that's not a luxury car. It's going to be really rough riding. It's not going to hold anything. You're not going to be able to store luggage or go on a road trip in it, or you get a luxury car and it's really slow and it's floaty, but it's really comfortable or you get like the big SUV and it's really slow and it's not that nice to drive. But the Mercedes E63 AMG wagon is, it breaks all those constraints and it's all three of those. And Cars and Bids is like that. Like he's broken all these typical trade-offs that come with building a creator business. Like most creators, they have to sacrifice on one dimension and it really hurts the long-term value of the business. But as we go into like the business strategy of cars and bids, you'll see that it's like the Mercedes E63 AMG wagon of businesses. Like it, it really has everything and it's just fascinating to dig into. Okay, so analyzing the business of cars and bids. There's a bunch of, I think there's 10 different topics that I wanna go through and different key takeaways about this business. The first is that Doug is really incredible at this strategy, I think I've heard a few people talk about it where you're supposed to give value as, as much as possible for years and years. And then when you go to capture that value, everyone is completely bought in as opposed to trying to monetize everything to the max immediately. And you see a lot of creators do this where they'll get one or two videos that do well and then immediately it's ads everywhere for scams and they'll take anything. And they're basically just trying to value capture way too early. Whereas if they took the time, like Doug took a decade building up credibility, really developing a relationship with his audience. And then when he went to finally launch this site, everyone trusted him. And on Cars and Bids, he writes or his team writes a little blurb about every car. And you just know that his take is honest because he's been producing these honest videos and these honest opinions for a decade now. And so he, the other thing that's interesting is that he doesn't need to really like comment on pricing because it's an auction site. So it would be one thing if he was saying like, look, I love this car and it's $400,000, but he doesn't need to say that. He needs to say, I love this car and it's worth what you pay for it. So that by taking that like value equation off the table with an auction site, he can just give his honest opinion and then the market can go and value the actual car. So it feels a lot less extractive as opposed to if he was saying, look, 
you love me, you're a fan of my content, I want you to buy this car, and it's twice the price of every other car. That would be terrible. And that's what happens with a lot of like merch, creator merch that's like $80 for a t-shirt, and you're like, why is it $80? And it's because they're basically just trying to capture as much value from their audience because they know their audience will pay anything. And, and so even though he's promoting an ad and a product basically in every video now, it doesn't really feel like a traditional brand integration or an ad because he is, it's his company and he's just telling you about what he's doing. He's selling this car and he's showing it to you and he's giving you the tour and it feels just way more authentic. And of course, the huge benefit to him is that, and this is true for pretty much every mark, every creator owned business, Doug is capturing 100% of the value from that ad spot. Like when a typical company goes to a creator and says, we wanna buy an ad on your channel, if they say, hey, we're gonna pay you $5,000 to promote our content or promote our service, they are only doing that because they get $10,000 of value from that read or more, sometimes a lot more. And of course, there are some ways that brands will give creators a cut of the future revenue with a coupon code. But the bottom line is that brands will never sponsor a creator unless they think they're making more money than it costs them, like they need their margin. And so you look back to Turo, Turo got the best deal ever for just a couple hundred bucks in Turo credit, they got this incredible ad that just keeps promoting them. And after the first 50 people converted to Turo, they were in the money and now they're still just making money anytime someone signs up for Turo. And because I watched that Doug DeMiro ad, I actually downloaded Turo and was thinking about renting a car the other day because I was like, oh, I wanna try something out. And so he doesn't get any value from me going and using Turo, but he does if I buy a car on Cars and Bids eventually. And this just goes to these having zero marketing costs as a creator is one of the most enticing reasons why every influencer wants to start a business because they love that they have zero marketing costs. And a lot of businesses, they haven't worked in like the venture context specifically because of the marketing costs. You start a direct-to-consumer company, you start advertising on Facebook and Instagram, and pretty quickly your CAC equals your LTV and you're not really making any money. Like the amount of money that it costs to buy a new customer on Facebook just equals the amount of profit that you make from that customer and you're not really creating any value there. And that's really tough. So if you're an influencer, you're like, oh, I have a free marketing channel. This is great. I will capture all the value, but it doesn't always work. There's this interesting example with this financial creator, Graham Stephan, who does like personal finance advice. And it, he started a coffee company, which was very weird because he's talking about credit cards and investing apps. But instead of starting a credit card or investing app, he started a coffee company that was very tangential. And he never had any coffee companies advertising on his channel, but then he created a coffee company and you could tell that he wasn't really fully bought in because he only promoted that company twice on his channel and he uploads every single day. And it, it was a very odd decision and then it didn't really go that well, but you can see that it was a clear mistake. Whereas with Doug, he promotes cars and bids every single episode. And so I think it's really important for creators to take this lesson away from Doug DeMuro is that you want to look at the ads that are currently being bought on your channel and then build that essentially. So why was he promoting Auto Trader and his oversteer blog on his channel all throughout 2014, 2015, that era, it was because 
Auto Trader was a site where you could buy cars and he was reviewing cars. It was perfectly aligned. Turo is also really aligned. So it makes sense if you're the Turo executive or the marketing guy at Turo, why would you advertise on Doug? Because he's talking about cars, your business is cars. It makes perfect sense. And so this is the concept of like content product fit. So the value comes from having a product that directly ties into the content. So it's something that, that when Doug makes content, he can make content about the product. So if he's selling a car on Cars and Bids, he can make content about that particular product. It's really hard if you're Graham Stephan and you're selling coffee, but your business, but your content is about what the stock market did that day. How are you going to link those two? It's just going to feel very disjointed when you say, hey guys, I know the stock market's down, but buy this coffee. It just doesn't make any sense. But if you're talking about a particular car and then that car is available for sale on your website, it makes perfect sense. So that's the basics of why creators want to launch companies. Zero marketing costs, thinking about content market fit, these things all make sense. But the real, the real unlock for cars and bids is that it's not a coffee company. It's a software company. And this unlocks so much value for him and so much scalability. And so basically all of software venture capital is built around zero marginal costs. Like even if you go back to the original Silicon Valley story with silicon chips, the reason that was such a great fit for venture capital was because after you do all the heavy capex to build the chip fab, which is hugely expensive. You have to build these crazy machines to actually build the semiconductor chips. But once you do that and it's up and running, the incremental cost of producing one more chip is basically zero. It's not actually zero, but it's very low. So you have this really high fixed cost up front, and then you just reap super high margins later in the business's life. And this is why after the silicon boom happened, all the venture capitalists moved over to software because you have to build this big software product, get it distributed, but then once you get it out there, you're able to basically reap the benefits of zero marginal cost and every incremental dollar, every incremental customer that comes in doesn't have an incremental cost to you. So that is just really important. And this the, the term for this is really like operating leverage. And so this unlocks scalability of the business. So operating leverage is basically the greater your percentage of costs that are fixed, the more operating leverage you have, which means the greater return you earn on every additional sale. And it's so funny that Cars and Bids fits this because it also mirrors Doug's actual YouTube channel. He has extreme operating leverage. The vast majority of his costs, which is basically just time spent reviewing cars, those costs are fixed. His leverage comes from the fact that adding an additional viewer doesn't increase his fixed costs at all. Instead, one more viewer makes every other viewer more profitable. And because the, basically the fixed costs get spread more broadly. And so if he has an opportunity cost to go drive, review a car, that takes a few hours, maybe he spends a full day on it. If he gets a thousand views, his costs are fixed. But if he gets a million views, his costs are still fixed. So the ad revenue that comes from that on his YouTube channel is just higher and higher margin. And this is the beauty of content businesses generally, but it's also the beauty of software and cars and bids versus a coffee company or t-shirt company or a creator merch company where the more customers you sell, you have more costs 
because every unit costs something to actually sell. There's shipping costs and then there's the manufacturing costs and all of that. And that's what killed Graham Stephan's coffee company was that he just wasn't making that much profit. I think he was making $2 a profit per bag or something. And it just wasn't enough to really scale the business, even though obviously he had a big audience and was able to, he actually has the exact same amount of subscribers as Doug, I think. And he was, he could have pointed people to it, but it just wasn't that profitable, even though they brought in some revenue. And I think they made like six figures in revenue pretty quickly, but it just wasn't very profitable. And so this idea of what business can you scale and continue to scale is really important. And with cars and bids, they also have the ability to scale internationally. They're already in the United States and Canada, and they'll actually let you buy a car on the site. If you're international, you just need to pay and then deal with the logistics and import fees to get the car where you want it to go. And of course, you know, it's software. So localizing it to Germany won't be very difficult. Of course, it'll be a little bit tricky to get an audience there and they'll need to build that up and there'll be some go-to-market costs, but the actual software that they're building will be very easy to scale internationally. And so basically he's built this business with a very high degree of upside. While the costs remain fixed, the revenue can grow very aggressively. And so that is why he was able to raise so much money and get this amazing deal with the churning group. So remember he got $37 million in primary and secondary. It was this great deal. And every creator is obsessed with this now. <laughs> and they all want to copy this because it's such a good deal. But the reason isn't just that, oh, he had a lot of followers and he monetized them with some basic business. It's because he created a software company that has software margins and software like growth capabilities. And he's really created something that can track like a VC investment, which is really important. But there are other interesting aspects to cars and bids that I think are extremely rare to see in creator businesses and really to see in any business, honestly. The first is price discrimination. This is fascinating, but cars and bids, because it's an auction site and they take a percentage of revenue and a percentage of the sale, they make more money off of a really high net worth customer that comes in versus a, versus just an average Joe that comes in. There's two great examples of this. Like Jerry Seinfeld actually watches Doug Demuro's channel and he's like a huge fan. And of course, if he shows up and buys a car, he's gonna buy something that's like a million dollars. And Cars and Bids is gonna get like $50,000 in revenue or something like that. I don't know exactly, I think they charge 5% or 3% margin on that. But but then th these other creators, Colin and Samir, they bought like a $7,000 Mercedes on Cars and Bids just for like fun to take the site for a spin. And of course, Cars and Bids makes way less on a $7,000 sale than on a $700,000 Lamborghini Countach. But the important thing is that not only is Doug able to service both of these customers, the high net worth and the average Joe, but he's able to extract more value from the high net worth customer. If you're selling $80 t-shirts, now your, your starving student fan, they're not gonna be able to buy it. The average Joe might be able to buy some, and the rich guy, he might buy two but he's not gonna buy a hundred times more. But with Jerry Seinfeld, cars and bids will literally make a hundred times as much money off of Jerry Seinfeld as Colin and Samir. And that is extremely valuable. And it's extremely rare in these creator businesses. It really, it's very rare to see. Obviously there are plenty of people that try and do like different tiers or certain like limited drops. And if you're an artist, you can scale these things, but it's, it's very natural in the context of cars and bids. And you don't even really see it going on until you dig into the way the site works. And then there's also, this concept of where does the value accrue 
in the supply chain. Something that just happened recently, it was kind of interesting in the creator world and the creator company world was Mr. Beast actually shut down his ghost kitchen chain, Beast Burger. And you can look at, it's a really interesting case study to compare the two. So with cars and bids, what's going on? Doug hires some software engineers to build the website. He gets some traffic there and then that's pretty much it. <laughs> Anytime someone goes on the website and transacts, he takes a cut. There really aren't that many other pieces of the supply chain where people are taking a cut of the overall sale price. The revenue is the revenue and it goes mostly to cars and bids. Of course, it's like the margin on the exchange, but that revenue, it's not like there's five other companies that take a, take a, take a slice of that. Now let's compare this to Beast Burger. So with ghost kitchens, who makes the money? You gotta pay the driver, you gotta pay the kitchen staff, you gotta pay the delivery app. And so who's really capturing the value? It's probably DoorDash, honestly, because they are the, they're the company that has actually aggregated the demand. And this leads into the theory of kind of aggregation theory, which is basically in a world of zero distribution costs, zero marginal costs, zero transaction costs, like the internet world, the value chain for any given consumer market is it's divided into three parts, suppliers, distributors, and consumers and users. And the best way to make outsized profit in any of these markets is to either gain a horizontal monopoly in one of the three parts or to integrate two of the parts such that you have a competitive advantage in delivering a vertical solution. So in the pre-internet era, people, like companies depended on controlling distribution. So the printed newspapers were primarily a means of delivering content to consumers in a given geographical region. So newspapers integrated backwards into content creation. So the newspaper would own the distribution and then they would also own the content creation. But with Facebook, they don't need to own the content creation because they've created a monopoly around the distribution. They basically aggregated all the eyeballs and then they're able to capture that even though they don't, they're not vertically integrated into creating the content. And that's what's going on with DoorDash. DoorDash is able to capture all of the demand for these ghost kitchens because they have, they've aggregated all of the demand for delivery services. And so when they raise their rates, there's like nowhere else you can go. So it's a, it's a very interesting to see that Beast Burger was a very rough business and it didn't really work out, but DoorDash has become like, it's, they're playing this like winner take all market. It was a very hard road, but they did eventually get there and they're leveraging that aggregation theory. And so the, this potentially could work for cars and bids. And they're starting small with this like narrow market definition of cool cars from the modern era. So 1980 and up, and they focus on these enthusiast cars. And obviously Doug has built this community and he's brought everyone over, but it's very hard to launch these businesses because you need to kickstart the marketplace and get it actually going. But once it's there, everyone just knows, oh, if you want to buy or sell a car, you go here. Of course, there are still a ton of there are a ton of competitors, eBay Motors and Bring a Trailer. But but the bet that I think the VCs are making when they invest in this company is, if this wins, it will win huge, and that's really valuable. Now, I want to like wind down and talk about some of the open questions that I wanted to answer with this kind of investigation. And I wanted to see how this ties to other companies. And it's interesting because the last few episodes we talked about David Holes building Midjourney, and you know what's the similarity with Doug? They both spent 10 years grinding, building skills, and then they basically captured all the value really quickly. So now Doug Jamiro and David Holes too, they both look like overnight successes, 
But of course, they spent a decade building the skills and preparing for that next era. And honestly, it's kind of the same thing with OpenAI. They basically spent 10 years developing things. And then ChatGPT is this like overnight success. Oh, the fastest company to to 100 million users, even though the company is almost a decade old. It's not to not give them credit. Like they, they deserve all the credit in the world for blowing ChatGPT up. But it was a grind and they spent a lot of time on this. There's really no, there's really no excuse for that. And it's the same thing with Palantir. They slogged it out for a decade with the military before starting to make real money and really figuring out how to maximize and capture the value. But they had, they had just spent so much time building the database, integrating everything. Alex Karp is just like building this cult of incredible engineers solving all these really hard problems. And now AI shows up and they're able to just drop that on top and be like, they'll probably be like the market leader in this stuff pretty soon because they're the only ones that can do like the hard piece, the unique piece. And so back to Doug, I the, one interesting thing is obviously every, every creator right now is obsessed with basically copying Doug Jumura because, oh, he made so much money, he bought this fancy million dollar car. I want that. Maybe you, maybe a creator has 4 million subscribers. They have similar views. They're like, I want that. What do I do? And there's a few things. Like, first off, like, obviously, Doug is, you can't copy the 10 years of goodwill that he built up. Like, he spent a long time. Like, that's going to take a long time if you want to build that. He says it's harder to get started on YouTube today. I don't know if that's completely true. Basically, he's carved out this, like, low-budget niche where for basically no cost at all. He just shows up, films a car. And then he's also created the snowball effect where at a, in every video, he puts up his email and says, can I film with your car? So he's constantly getting new emails from people that have cars that will let him go and film them for free, basically. And it'd be pretty hard to start fresh, but people do start fresh all the time. There are TikTok creators that review cars right now and they just figure out a way to get a car and then they make some good content and it blows up. So I think it's possible to follow in the footsteps, but you probably need to think about it in a 10 year time scale, not in a, oh, I blew up this year. I need to launch an auction site. That's probably not going to work. And then the other thing is that I don't think every content creator is going to have this perfect logical tech company that maps on to their content perfectly. But I do think if people really take some time and process what their content is and try and find some alignment there, they can do better. Like you can kind of see that with Mr. Beast, like there was never really any company, any food companies advertising on his, it's not like other burger chains were advertising on his channel. So launching a burger chain was a weird tangential idea. I've heard that he's starting to think about launching mobile games and that feels a little bit more aligned. Like obviously a lot of his audience watches on mobile phones, but his content is a game show fundamentally. And it's this battle royale usually. And so if you create a game that that simulates a, like a reward function that's similar to a Mr. Beast experience, he's tried some of this with this finger on the app thing that was a very literal in interpretation of a Mr. Beast video where if you downloaded this app, you could literally win money. But I think that there's probably a world where you create a mobile game that simulates some of the characteristics of a of the Mr. Beast experience and then has those software margins and the international scalability and some of the amazing features that VCs look for in big scalable companies. So I think the big takeaway for creators are obviously don't rush. You can't fake authenticity. Just play the long game and spend a long time and then just wait for the perfect pitch and then swing hard. Like clearly Doug could have launched a like a dongle company for holding your phone in your car and it would be like tangentially related. And I think he probably did do some merch at some point, but he really wasn't in a rush to just capture value, maximize the revenue of the channel. But then when the right opportunity came along, 
He built it, launched it, it was successful, and then he captured all that value really quickly and got like a multi-million dollar payout. And then there's the other question, which is like, what can non-creators learn from Doug Demiro? And I think the big takeaway is just like, it's easy to learn business concepts from cars and bids. And it's probably in the previous episode, we talked about Apple and the Apple Vision Pro and Tim Cook and all of the stuff that they've done with like vertical integration and their supply chain. And they have all this monopoly power in the app store. And realistically, there isn't that much you can learn from Apple. Maybe if you're like trading the stock, you can learn some stuff, but you really can't learn that much just from if you're building a business from scratch in the first few years, because Apple's this 50 year old company, massive, fully integrated. They have so many advantages that they can come into the augmented reality market like a decade late and produce something like pretty amazing. It's just like, that doesn't really apply to the average person, but thinking about cars and bids, that really does. There's probably a plenty of people out there who just don't understand price discrimination and how that can be built into their business. And cars and bids is like a perfect example of price discrimination in action. Fundamentally, the story of Doug Demuro is just a guy who thought for the long term. He never tried to squeeze every dollar out of his channel. He doesn't really have a take over the world mentality. And he's said that directly. He's just honest and passionate and people love this. I found this quote from Hacker News about Doug Demuro where the guy says, Demuro is proof that you can be a popular creator without resorting to sex appeal, profanity, or out and out lies to get traction. He's personally one of my favorites. And I think that's amazing. But at the same time, he's not entirely a purist about his content. There's this other content creator in the car world called Whistlin' Diesel, who is just an, he's like the Mr. Beast of cars. He like will buy a monster truck or destroy a Ferrari. He's just really frustrates people. He's totally over the top. And Doug DeMuro likes him and he's like, this stuff's awesome. And it is, it's really entertaining stuff. Fundamentally, I think Doug is just, he's just a guy that really likes cars and he just has just stuck with it for a very long time, worked really hard, and then finally was able to capture the value when the right opportunity came along. And there's a lot of ruthless business people out there, but sometimes it's just fun to hear the story of someone who executed well and got exactly what they wanted. So thanks for listening.